Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Gathering Podcast. Hi, Imago. We are in the third kind of sub-series, in the middle of it, in our travels through the book of Genesis, and we've been seeing how God has reconciled himself or is reconciling himself to his creation. And we've been walking with Abram and Sarai, whose names by the time I do this sermon have been changed to Abraham and Sarah. And we see what it means to be shaped by encounters with God. And these encounters invite us to follow him into deeper relationship. Now, these two are the perfect example for us right now um, as we try to navigate this post-pandemic landscape. Like Abram and Sarah, We are in a strange land, in a strange place, uh, without a map and without directions. Like them, we're not sure what we can expect. Our lives have been shaken, and there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives right now. And like them, we're actually being invited to follow God into deeper relationship. Now, last week, Rick took us through the covenant that God made with Abram, and check that that uh, sermon out if you haven't, as well as the first sermon. So this week, I want to look at Sarah's walk of faith. Now, Sarah's is a little different from Abraham's. Now, Abraham is called the father of faith, and uh, Sarah is actually known more for her lack of faith. She gets a bad rap, though, I think, because her faith is actually, if, if, if we really look at it, her faith is forged in realer and more reliable or relatable at least fires. She has less to work with and she has more working against her. Now we dream of following Abraham's lead and his example, but more often Sarah's example is what marks our faith. I know it's what marks mine. So let's start with a text. We're gonna jump right in. God visits Abraham in the form of three men who show up at his tent. Abraham knows there's something special about them. So he's running around and he asks them to stay. He's running around making sure that they have great food and great bread and something to drink. And he's being really hospitable for them. So we pick up the text at uh, verse nine in chapter 18 of Genesis, if you have your Bibles. And it says, where is your wife, Sarah? They ask him. There in the tent, he says. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you in the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Now the story moves on from there to something else completely. And so we're left with this picture of Sarah hearing God's promise, doubting, and then lying about it when she's called out for it. Now you contrast that with Abraham who hears the same promise a few weeks ago and we see more of his response though. He, like Sarah, doubts at first and he even laughs, though he laughs out loud. And after some discussion with God, he believes and then he circumcises all the males in his household that very same day. 
Now we look at this and we say, it's simple. This is a story about faith versus no faith, right? Well, I think there's more to the story. Instead of jumping to the conclusion of where Sarah is, ask yourself, how did she get to where she was? I think the lazy question when we're looking through scripture sometimes is, what is wrong with her? But the better question is, what happened to her? Now, Sarah's story, like ours, begins way before what we see in this passage. So much more goes into people than what we actually see. How we show up is very often different from what we're made of when we show up. Now, walking by faith is not easy. We don't just meet God and get it right from that point on. Relationship with him is equal parts learning who he is and unlearning who I'm used to being. Living with him has to replace all of our experience of living without him. And the better we see him, the better we see ourselves, our shortcomings, like Rick said last week. That's a whole other thing that we have to overcome. And then you add to that life experiences, events, trauma, all of it can make faith a lot more challenging than it appears to be for Abraham. Life in a broken, sinful world conspires to chip away at our faith, even as we try to build our faith. Time can chip away at our faith. Waiting for God to move can take so much time that it begins to pick away at what it is we're waiting for. People chip away at our faith. Relationships, experiences with people, experiences without people. I grew up without a dad and that in some ways affected the way I saw God and the way I related to him and experienced him. We ourselves can chip away at our own faith. What we do when we don't have faith, our decisions, our reactions to things, all of those things can chip away at our faith and all three of these factors went into shaping Sarah, went into shaping her faith. So we meet Sarah all the way back in Genesis 11 and the first thing that is said about her after that she's Abram's wife is that she was childless because she was unable to conceive. Now this defines her. She is worse in some ways than a widow or an orphan. She is a wife who is barren. She cannot give her husband a child. She cannot carry on his line, his family lineage, his legacy. And so we have Sarah in this, this, this horrible, difficult, pitiful situation. And this is where we find her. This is where she starts. Her story starts in this difficult place. And if we look at those three things, time, people, and ourselves, and how they chip away at our faith, we can look at each one of those and consider how they kind of chipped away maybe at Sarah's faith. So first of all, time. God meets Abram and, and promises that he'll be a great nation and that he'll bless the world. Abram is 75 when this happens. Sarah is 65. Now, when God formalizes his covenant with Abram, it's 10 years later. Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. That's 25 years of believing God for a promise. How long would you wait? How long would you stick around? How long would you believe? How long would you be certain of God? And 
How long would it take for you to say, did I miss God? Did I hear him wrong? Am I sure that he said what it is I think he said? Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now that word makes the heart, that word sick, where it says it makes the heart sick, it makes the heart weak and it makes the heart tired and it makes the heart behave as though it is wounded and grieving. So if you think about Sarah and you think about how time has affected her faith possibly, it is that she is a woman who started off already barren and she cannot have children. But here she is with a heart eroded over the years and now she's got a heart that is tired and wounded and weak and grieving. And so that can tear away at your faith. Add to that people, the relationships that she had to deal with and the experiences that can happen to you in relationships can do more to, to wreck your faith than, than most things. But if we just look at one relationship in particular, Sarah's relationship with her husband, Abraham. Now, Sarah was married and she was beautiful, but she was not cherished as a wife should be. She had no protection. There's a point at which Abram travels to Egypt and while he's, you know, when he's going there, he tells her, look, you're beautiful and people are going to want to kill me because of you. So I need you to tell people that you're my sister and then they'll treat me nice because they want to curry favor with me because they're, they believe that you're my sister. So now you have a wife with no covering, no protection going into this land where these people then, of course, as he suspects, they see that she's beautiful and Pharaoh wants her. So he takes her, he takes her to his home and he is going to make her his. Now just think about the danger that she's been put in by her own husband. They're giving him cows and money and food and all the other things that you could possibly need to give a person because she is his sister. But Pharaoh is saying, I want her to be mine. So he takes her and Abram lets him do it. So now she's with Pharaoh and it's God who has to step in before this man literally assaults her, that God has to step in and he makes Pharaoh's entire household and Pharaoh himself completely diseased. At which point Pharaoh goes to Abraham, Abram and says, why would you do this? Why would you not tell me that this was your wife? And then he gets rid of him. He's like, you gotta go. But he sends him off with all kinds of stuff. So now you've got your wife that you've put in danger. She's been put in danger. She's been traumatized by the fact that she's about to be assaulted by the Pharaoh and there's nothing she can do about it. And then God steps in and, and she's okay. But he does this to her twice. He does this to her again. And this time it's with a king named Abimelech. And when he's found out this time, Abimelech asks him like, what are you thinking? Why would you do a thing like this? And his answer in Genesis 20, 13, it says, Abraham says, when God made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, talking about Sarah, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. This is how you can show your love to me. But who was there to show his love to Sarah. How was he to love Sarah, 
A husband is supposed to love his wife by protecting her, caring for her. He did none of that. As a matter of fact, he, he walked around lying in a way that put her in harm's way and put her in danger. Now, God, of course, is there both times. God steps in and saves her and, and takes care of the situation. But I don't know, to be honest with you, how easy it is to see God in the midst of such trauma. Twice, you almost get assaulted and raped. And twice, the person who put you in that situation is the person who is charged with the responsibility of taking care of you. So it's no wonder that her faith is eaten into. And then you have her own decisions. So think about it, 10 years after God has told Abram, Abraham that his offspring will number the stars, Sarah is still without children. And she says in Genesis 16 too, she says, so it says, so she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah, to what Sarah said. Now we try to, you know, we, we, we try to help God keep his promises sometimes, don't we? We take up the reins and we try to move things forward. If he said that something is supposed to happen, then we want to kind of try to help him along because, you know, maybe he needs our help. And often that doesn't work out and we end up worse off than we were when we started. Hagar, who is Sarah's slave, is from Egypt and she sleeps with Abram and she gets pregnant. Well, the minute she gets pregnant, she starts looking down at Sarah. She starts despising her. She starts treating her like she's nobody because of course, I'm a woman who's got a child. You don't have a child, you're barren. You are the most pitiful thing in the land. So Sarah is worse off because A, she feels that God is against her. She believes that God is the one who closed up her womb. B, she says her husband isn't with her and he loves his son. And then C, she's got this servant who was a reminder of everything that is wrong in her life. Because remember that Hagar is the Egyptian slave, which means she's one of the slaves that Abram brought back from Egypt in that time when he put her in harm's way and almost got her assaulted by Pharaoh. One of the things that he left with were Egyptian slaves. And so Hagar was one of those. And so she becomes a reminder of everything that's wrong. She has given her husband a son. She has given Abraham a son. And she is also being looked down on by Hagar. And to top all of that off, much of what she's going through is because of her own decision-making and her own doing. We get to this place sometimes where we're extra alone. I can only imagine how that must have felt for Sarah because I've often said to married couples, there is one thing, it's one thing to be lonely when you're single, but if you are lonely and you're married because your spouse is not there for you or not there with you, there is no loneliness like the loneliness a spouse can feel inside of a broken marriage. And that is where Sarah is. You get to this place where all the evidence in your life begins to point to you and you begin to wonder, am I the problem? So Sarah's journey is nowhere near like Abraham's. God is not showing up in the same way for her as he is 
for Abraham. She doesn't have God pointing to the stars for her and saying, look, you're gonna have all these kids. She's gotta take all of the, get all of this stuff secondhand from Abraham. She's almost assaulted twice. And it's Abraham who walks away with money and property for her trouble. Sarah's journey is one of a desire delayed and it made her heart sick. And then a sick heart has a hard time trusting God. Like a wounded animal, it trusts no one. It control, it has to try to control everything. And that just leads to more brokenness. She still has a house to run though. She still has a husband that she has to take care of. And she still has a husband she has to follow as he follows God. So she's going through the motions. She's disappointed, she's resentful, she's resigned. Her life is a mess. She's blaming herself in some ways. And she is experiencing what I like to call functional hopelessness, where you are hopeless, but you're going through the motions and you're not having discussions with other people about it because why would you? Because you feel like you found yourself in this situation mostly because of your own decisions, mostly because of your own actions. And so now she's in this place of hopelessness where she just simply is having a hard time believing. And that is the woman that we find in Genesis 18. We find that woman who is watching her husband scurry around trying to be hospitable to these men and doing his best for everybody else because of course everybody matters to him but her. She's 89 years old watching Ishmael grow and he's basking in the glow of Abraham's love while she remains childless and she's past childbearing now. Her body has gone through menopause and she can no longer bear children biologically. And so 25 years of waiting, 25 years of waiting and hoping and being disappointed, the God who closed her womb when she was able to bear children has come to say that he'll open it when she's no longer able to bear children. So Sarah laughed to herself and she thought, after I'm worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? I get it. I get Sarah. I can relate to Sarah. I've been Sarah. I've hoped and been disappointed. I have trusted and am still waiting. I've tried to make some things happen on my own and messed them up or they came to nothing. Life in some ways is very, very different than I imagined it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And yet there is nothing wrong with me because this is not the end of my story any more than Genesis 18 is the end of Sarah's story. If you turn to Hebrews 11:11, you'll find Sarah named among the heroes of faith. It says in that verse, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now, how does she get from doubting and laughing within herself to believing God faithful? I think the answer is in that very passage. Genesis 18, 13 through 15 says, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. 
Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now the first clue is in what they say to her at the beginning of that passage. It says, they call her Sarah throughout the entire text. Now Sarah is, is the name that is connected to the covenant promises of God. It's the name that is connected to God and Abraham. In fact, God said to Abraham, when he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, he said, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name is Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings and peoples will come from her. What God says about you needs to be louder and more important than what you say about yourself. Our identity is in him. We're not what happens to us. We're not what other people say about us. We're not what we say about ourselves. We are his, period, in all things. If you are a wife, you are his wife. If you are a mother, you're his mother. I am a pastor, but I'm his pastor first. I am a daughter, but I am his daughter, even before I am my mother's daughter. You are his. Put that in front of every descriptor that you have for yourself. And what you'll, what you'll do is you'll see just how much that matters. Some of you might say to yourselves that you're, you're a loser. Okay, you're his loser. What does that mean? That means that you belong to him. And he says that you are his, made in his image, and you have the dignity of humanity that he put on you. So what that does is that, that clears things up. You belong to him, and he will tell you who you are. The second thing that happened is that God surfaced the doubt that Sarah was feeling by calling it out. The things we say in our thoughts are just as important as the things that come out of our mouths. God hears every single thought we have and every thought we have is placed in the same place as the words that come out of our mouths. The psalmist said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, God, my strength and my redeemer. We cannot control how we feel. Feelings are the result of things we've gone through, things we've experienced, and they happen, and we can't control them. But we express what we're feeling through our thoughts, and our words, and we can manage our thoughts and our words. And if the feelings are rooted in a lie, then we have to bring the thoughts and the words about those feelings out into the light so that God can call us to the truth. Now, Sarah felt alone and old and useless and beyond the promise. Her thoughts reflected that. So God called them out into the open and then shifted her focus, which is the third thing he did. And he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now I want you to like, un I wanna unpack that word hard because it doesn't mean hard, just like, like just difficult. When he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? That word hard means amazing, extraordinary, wonderful, marvelous, beyond our comprehension. He says, is anything too amazing for me? to deal with. It's interesting and important to note that in Psalm 139, where it says, I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. It says, marvelous are your works and that my soul knows right well in the King James Version. That word marvelous are your works is the same word. It is the word, is anything too marvelous for God? So now you've got a God for whom nothing is too marvelous, who made you, who is marvelous. You are a marvelous work of God. And so he wants to call those things out. And he says to Sarah, basically, look, I made you, girl. You are marvelous because I made you. And by the way, I'm even more marvelous than the you that I made. I got this. I got this and I've got you. And the, and the real question is whether or not your soul will know that. Your soul needs to be able to appreciate just how great God is. In his book, The Holy Wild, Mark Buchanan writes, St. Augustine walked the seashore, pondering the majesty of God. He saw a small boy who had dug a hole in the sand. The boy kept sco scooting down to the ocean, scooping up water in a seashell and scrambling back to pour the water into a hole. What are you doing? Augustine asked him. I'm going to pour the sea into that hole, the boy said. Ah, Augustine thought, this is what I have been trying to do. Standing at the ocean of infinity, I have tried to grasp it with my finite mind. When I read this, I saw myself standing on a shore and imagining that God was the ocean. And I imagined turning my back to the ocean and just falling back and letting the ocean take me. Not for real, but just, just, just figuratively speaking, if God is the ocean, just falling back and allowing him to take me wherever I was going to go overwhelmed, out of control, helpless. And then I asked myself, I had written in my journal after I read this, when was the last time I was swallowed up by hope? When was the last time I was consumed with believing you? We have to make room for awe in our days. Awe humbles you when you realize that God is so God, that he is the equivalent of, of the ocean while we try so hard to comprehend him with a little seashell worth of water, that humbles us. And Peter says that when we are humbled, that God can then give us grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gave Sarah, Isaac, and it says, his name, Isaac, means laughter. It says in Genesis 21, one through two and six through seven, it says, now the Lord was gracious, there's that word grace, to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I want you to take a minute to locate yourself in Sarah's story. Do you have a hope or a desire that has been deferred or delayed? 
Are you disappointed? Are you operating in a form of functional hopelessness where you're just kind of going through the motions and letting things happen and you're not telling people you're hopeless? You're not asking for prayer for your hopelessness. You're not asking God for more faith because you've kind of resigned yourself to maybe thinking that he's not gonna show up in this area or maybe that you heard him wrong? What do you actually need? Do you, re do you need to remember what God has said about you and what he continues to say about you? Do you need to surface your doubtful thoughts and submit them to the light of his truth? Maybe you need to shift your focus off of who you are and on to who God is and hear him say, is anything too hard for me? I had a pastor once who used to say, of everybody's problem, is it bigger than a dead Jesus? He'd say, because if your problem is not bigger than a dead Jesus, then your problem is totally solvable. Maybe you need some more awe in your life. Maybe you need to meditate on them, spend some time with him, go out in nature, look at the ocean, be on a mountain, look at some of the things that he has made and realize that he is amazing. I have had to go through weeks where all I wanted to read was Psalm 139 because I needed to remember how fearfully and wonderfully made I am and how marvelous his works are and how there is not a single thought that I have in my head that he does not know entirely before I even think it. With all things, just ask yourself, is anything too hard for God? I think Sarah, like I said, gets a bad rap. I get her, I understand her. I've been in that place with her. But I've also been in the place where I look forward to the laughter that she experienced with Isaac. And you will too. Ask God to show you where you are in Sarah's story. Ask him to show you if you need to believe again that one day, laughter will come. Weeping, the Bible says, will endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have been where Sarah was. And you know that because you know my thoughts, you know my feelings, you know everything that I have experienced in my life. You know the decisions that I have made. You know the decisions that anybody who is listening to me now, you know all of us have tried to control things and we've all tried to make things happen. We've all tried to help you along with what it is you're doing, but God, show us where we are in Sarah's story. Bring us to a place where we can actually remember anew that nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too marvelous for you, that you do all things well. You are the author and the finisher of our faith and you are the one who is faithful between the beginning and the end. Help us to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.